0: Welcome to the Sum of It All Bad at Math podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're re-exploring the book, uh, Bad at Math, dismantling harmful beliefs that hinder equitable mathematics education by Lydia Gonzalez. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're chatting about chapter three, mathematicians and mathematicians in training. Mark, what stood out for you at the beginning of this chapter?
1: Well, Audrey, let's just dive into the first uh, header, right? How does society view mathematicians? And our author has three bullets, and you might have noticed them. What The first one is unusually smart. The second is able to recognize or see patterns that others do not. And the third one is able to compute in one's mind with both precision and speed. And Audrey, that second one just jumped out at me a little bit because I think that there was a nuance I hadn't thought about before. This idea of being able to see patterns that others do not, um, I don't think I'd seen it expressed quite that way before, but um, that's really something to think about.
0: It is. It reminds me of... um like Leo in the matrix, this idea of like, you can see through patterns and nobody else has this ability, like this like supernatural take a, what is it? Blue pill, red pill. I forget that. I forget. I need to go watch the movie. I'll leave it there. That's my analogy. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, this is a pretty bad setup, right? You can see where this is going,
1: (laughs) you know, like seeing through stuff. That's, that's, Pretty tall order, right? Yep. Uh Another thing that was mentioned in page sixty-five, Audrey, that again was not a surprise to me, but just seeing it in print just was uh, just pretty heavy. Uh, the author states how historically it was believed that studying mathematics was harmful to women. Mm. Like I remember mm. reading things about similar things around that, but. Just the fact that it's stated that it's actually harm thought to be harmful uh, for women. Um, it just makes me think about like, if something like that is seeped into a culture, I, I don't think it just gets washed out, right? Yeah.
0: No, it just doesn't in a generation change and become something different. And Super interesting about this because so many of these disparities and so many of the pieces I I know a lot about. Um, and I've read a lot about and experienced many of these. Um, one I didn't know from the beginning was around female characters and math texts. Um, and this was fascinating. They found in this study that the female characters are more often used in problems where students are asked to repeat an existing procedure. Whereas male characters are used when students are expected to try novel approaches and try something wow. new. And wow. I was just like, wow, like talk about the fog that's all around us that we can't Mm. even realize it's there. It's the air we breathe. Like it's, you don't even realize this. Like what kind of analysis do you have to do to figure out that that's happening? And I'm going to, I'm going to, keep my optimistic stance, like that it's not Mm -hmm. happening intentionally. Like there's not like a evil publisher out there saying, I want to make sure that women never see themselves as mathematicians, but it's just part of like our cultural beliefs that Mm. we don't even realize we're like perpetuating this. So super interesting. Um, and I'm so glad that, you know, she took time to point out some of the mathematicians who are female, who have won um, recent prizes and awards, um, top awards, um, Calling back to the previous chapter, just a quick note for listeners who are staying with us for the season, both of the um, gals who won the awards, won them for non-algebraic, non-computational math. So just calling out like, we gotta do both kind of simultaneously is be like, math is not just equations and numbers and algebra, right? And it's not just guys who are doing it. So call out to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the author goes on to include this idea of media perceptions, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, talk about things being seeped into our culture, into television programs we watch, movies we see, other print media. And, you know, the author shares examples how mathematicians or or people that are skilled in math, how they're portrayed in the media, they're portrayed primarily as white males, not, not a huge surprise, but she really makes this interesting point about how they tend to be neurodivergent and 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 these qualities that that these characters tend to uh be portrayed with and she makes a really really important point audrey that i think is is really important for our listeners to consider is that um, when we portray mathematical characters in the media or when we view them in the media of having characteristics of neurodivergent individuals it actually feeds into stereotypes of both groups. Mm -hmm. So like the way she puts it is like mathematically able people tend to be neurodivergent and neurodivergent people excel in math and science. So those are both stereotypes that it's uh, that, that, that portrayal is feeding into. Mm -hmm. And this was an aha for me. And and I really feel like it's something I should have thought before we've throughout our podcast and the many seasons we've really, tried to consider the variability and neurodiversity of our students and i think we really need to think about how this portrayal of mathematicians in media is feeding us a stereotype in two different ways
0: yeah that's super powerful mark i'm so glad you brought that up it's um it's so important that we think about that and think about the consequences of, of those stereotypes and how we view people um you know when there's so many of them and it's so interesting to try to uncover our own um it's really like seeing our own biases is not easy. It's work that we have to think about how to kind of like catch ourselves in those moments.
1: Yeah.
0: And she talks about a couple different activities um and I've done some in different presentations over the years. Um one that ca- that caught me early on was when someone asked us to write down as many descriptors of a mathematician as you could think of in like 60 seconds. And 60 mm. seconds is a long time. Um if you want to pause the podcast right now and like think, what are the words that come to mind? Do it. I found the words that I came up with were not words. um, They were not words that I was proud of, I guess, in the end. Like Mm -hmm. I realized I was like the words that came up quickly for me were words that were very stereotypical and based on um, things I've been told about mathematicians. And I didn't come up like the first thoughts were not the standards for mathematical practice. And it wasn't like (laughs) they're creative and they're great communicators. And, you know, um, they have passion, like none of those came up. Um, Mm. And so it's super interesting. The other one um, that really pushed me to uncover some of my, my bias was um, was someone asked us to name the first three mathematicians that came to mind. Um, And again, you can pause and think of that if you want to. I realized that i did not know the names of mathematicians i knew pythagoras and i realized i knew some other names based on theorems i you know but i didn't know people's names and when you don't know people's names you don't know who they are right like you have no way to identify them as something other than like this godlike you know creation out in the sky that does math and not a human being like someone who's like you
1: I I think that's so interesting, Audrey, because I think of authors, right? Like, sure. unless we're in a Jimmy Kimmel episode out on the curb and they're asking us (laughs) to name authors and we can't think of any Um, other than that circumstance, I think most of us can probably name lots of authors. Yeah. And those are authors of books.
0: Why can't we think of authors of mathematics? Right. Super interesting. Right. Um, Now it makes me wonder, though, if you've been one of those people that Jimmy Kimmel stopped. So I'm going to have to go look at some episodes. Um. But all that to say, like, we need to become more familiar with mathematicians and reason realizing that as an area of bias, um, when we don't have those names and we don't have those faces and those identities. We, def- we default to what our society has given us, which is this optic of mathematicians as someone who is awkward and weird and old and white and male and et cetera, et cetera. So super interesting. Um, but that also makes me think about this space. Mm-hmm. Where she heads around when do we refer to ourselves as mathematicians or not? Um, so Mark, I'm super curious, I know I'm putting a oh. spot here. Do you consider yourself a mathematician?
1: Oh wow. Uh, yeah, on the spot, Audrey. Um, yeah. So uh, so interesting that you ask a question. Um, I stand up in front of people on a regular basis and talk to everybody about how they're mathematicians and i i i've done the same in lessons with students and like uh you know you you're going to engage in practices of a mathematician today um but you know all that said audrey if i had to take a lie detector test um and you asked <laughs> and asked that question uh i don't know if i'd pass ouch
0: ouch yeah that is a super interesting mark and i appreciate your honesty in answering that um in the text, she describes a student who is studying mathematics and someone asks her and she says, oh, I'm studying mathematics. And they're like, oh, you're going to be a mathematician. And the person was like, oh, I hadn't realized I'm going to be a mathematician. And that made me just really pause, Mark, because I, ha- I have a degree in mathematics hmm. and I don't consider myself a mathematician most days, hmm. most ever. And so like, when when is it that we... Are no longer a mathematician in training than we are a mathematician. Yeah. I find that super interesting. Mm-hmm. Like it's not the degree that does it, it's not the studying. Like I think most people in our society would look at the math that this student was engaged in doing in her studies and probably call her a mathematician. Like yeah. they wouldn't look up yeah. and be like, oh, you're still learning how to be a mathematician. No, you are a mathematician. Mm-hmm. And yet she doesn't own it for herself. I don't own it for myself most days. Um, so I think that's and I wonder like if we ask teachers elementary teachers, secondary teachers, even, are you a mathematician? I think most of them would say, no, those people over in that building down the street at the university yeah. are mathematicians. Right. Yeah. And I think that's super interesting because, um, we don't do that with writing and reading.
1: Yeah, Like
0: we don't mm-hmm. say if you're an author, you're a writer, we tell all of our students, they're writers. And we, right. we don't, you know, yeah. reading isn't something that's like only for folks who have a degree, I don't know, and so super interesting. A couple years ago, um, there was a shadow con, and I'll stick it in the show notes. Um, Deborah Pert, um, did this shadow con on mathers, and she calls out this language of saying like, if we have readers and we have writers, then we have mathers.
1: Right. And
0: how do we like own words that um we can use with our students? Because I don't think our students, if we walked in and we're like, you're all mathematicians, like I think. I think they'd look at us and be like, no, we're not. You know, like, I think it's so ingrained in our society that people would be like, no, that's not true. We're not mathematicians. But maybe we could call ourselves mathers as like the doers of mathematics, like in the same way we're readers and we're writers. So I'm I'm super excited about that kind of switch in language, too.
1: Yeah, I I like that, Audrey. I, I think of words like sometimes words like scholars or mathematicians. I think sometimes they can just be these labels that we throw out there, unless there's under something underneath them. Um, but the, I like that. I when I saw it on Twitter, I, it really resonated with me. That that idea of mathers, um, it just uh, feels different than using the word mathematicians. I I think what I I would say, Audrey, I think it feels more authentic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I really think that's it. It and maybe it also helps us in not having to fight such hard, fast societal beliefs around mathematicians and that we can invent a new word and say, like, th- this is everyone. Everyone can be a mather, right? Like, okay, maybe you're still going to hold mathematician as that person over down the street mm-hmm. in that building that mm-hmm. has a chalkboard and right, you know, right. all that stuff. Um, along with that, I think it's really interesting that these disparities and this these stereotypes have been around for a very, very long time. And the author calls out and she says, so why hasn't this changed? Hmm. And um, here's a quote from page 65. And she says, because existing research and policy has focused on assimilating students rather than examining the existing societal and institutional barriers to STEM majors and careers. What do you think about that?
1: Well, it it, it made me think about what she was writing about in that section where she was talking about there were these books that um, were were meant to uh, introduce girls to uh, uh, Mm -hmm. STEM-related careers and um, mathematics and science in general. And it's funny, I was like reading the titles of them and and I was like, hmm, I'm not sure about this. And Mm -hmm. then she gets to the end, right? Like, and she says, these books are flawed that they narrowly value and portray the experience of girls who are white and middle class. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had some other issues with yes. them as well, but <laughs> that, that were very stereotypical. But um I just think it's it's really important to consider the fact that, you know, who are we centering? Who are we who are we lifting up to connect to this idea of mathematics? Because um even in these books that didn't do a great job of it in many ways, they were still just it was still just this idea of white middle class girls that we might be looking to support and, you know, Audrey, this all thought made me think about there's a book called push out uh, by Monique W. Morris. And, um, I, I bought the book and I'm really interested in reading my colleague, uh, our colleague has recommended it. And, uh, I, I throw that out for our readers to or our listeners to consider, uh, because it's, I think it's an important book to really consider like what's going on with, um, our girls of color and how are we making sure that we are supporting them and making sure that they they are they're somebody that we're lifting up and and making sure that they have all the opportunities to
0: connect to this. I I really think that's powerful, Mark, because we're talking here about like we don't even realize when trying to center women that we are centering white women, white middle class women, right? And so I think it's important to keep pushing at this and saying like instead of assimilation, right? How do we broaden it and say yeah, this is for yeah. everyone? So I really right. appreciate your point there and and thinking about that work.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, really, and you brought this up earlier, Audrey, I mean, all roads seem to lead to this idea of implicit bias. I mean, that we all have some degree of bias um, as we work to you know, ensure that all of our students believe that they're capable of doing something. We have to have that belief that all of our students are capable and they have that degree of brilliance. And we all need to acknowledge that implicit bias can be something that is holding us back from doing that. And uh, just just another resource that you and I have discovered, the New York Times has some really cool videos around implicit bias that are really short and impactful. Um, so I, I just uh, recommend those as a way to just dig into this a little bit and consider for each of us to consider our own implicit bias and, and how that's retreading kind of the the state that we're in around mathematics and making sure all of our students can see themselves as mathers.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, the who Me, who Me Biased series from the New York Times is one of my favorites. Um, and again, rethinking that fog that's all around us. And I think it's especially important because some of these topics are coming up right now as folks are thinking about who gets to go into what classes next year and how advanced or not advanced students are and what grades do I give them at the end of the year. So super interesting to kind of interrogate our bias in that place. But I also think that when we talk about changing things in the classroom, interrogating our implicit bias is like one step or one way to kind of start working on this. Um, But I also think there are some real practical things we can do in the classroom that help both us expand our views and our students. And the author lists a whole series of projects around thinking how we introduce our students to diverse mathematicians. One of my favorite things that happens on Desmos is when um, folks who use that in secondary curriculum um, is when you (laughs) anonymize the, the names, the mathematicians are a diverse group. And that was not necessarily perfect to begin with. They've grown a lot in how they've identified different mathematicians, but like, When you have a student get one of those names, you're like, go research that person. Who are they? Google them for a minute. Like, who is that person? And they're vastly not white male mathematicians. So how do we continue to, like, introduce our students to, like, the diversity that's out there in the field so that they can see themselves potentially as a mathematician?
1: Yeah, I I love that Desmos example. Um, The other thing I'm thinking, Audrey, especially with my elementary lens is, I'm thinking about that question that many of us as elementary educators end up asking our students, you know, the age old question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and I, I think that it's just worth considering like how we expect, where do we think kids are getting those ideas from, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I think that in many cases, their ideas are uninformed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, as you know, this is something that's pretty close to me right now. I have two two high school seniors in my own household, and, and it's a question I'm certainly thinking a lot about more lately. Um, and and certainly reflecting on their journey as they've gone through school and how how that question is, it's kind of a charged question. And and again, I think I think kids have a lot of bad advertising in terms of thinking about what that answer might be.
0: I think that's such a great point. You know, if all the careers you've been exposed to are policemen and firemen and lawyers and doctors, like that's right. We don't get introduced to mathematicians. I also think that that phrase, I appreciate your pushing on that phrase. Um, One, because, you know, all the data shows us that most people are more than one thing in their life, right? So asking kids what they want to be when they grow up makes it sound like you get to choose one. Mm -hmm. And we get to be far more than that. Um, Most of us, have more than one career one more than one identity but also the other piece around our students can be things now and i think there's a lot of our work as educators that we are preparing kids for a future instead of preparing them for today um as well like i think we have to do both it's both you know in the future as you become an adult mm-hmm. and you go on various paths yes and right now you are um this right you are creative and you are a mather and etc so i think there's kind of the two sides of that that i hope that we continue to work towards as we think about that question and our students
1: yeah yeah for sure and um in the chapter audrey um she has this example from york college with this project with these college students and um she examines how they shifted their perceptions about mathematicians um because in all the work that they did with them, you know, they had this shift in, in how they thought about, um, mathematicians and it, it may be, cause some of the implications are like, what if we did some of these things in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. What if we included more, uh, like the Desmos example, we have ways to learn about mathematicians that don't fit our stereotype. What if we have some posters and things that, that are on the walls around us and so forth. Um, but it, all of this made me wonder the difference between all of that and actually having interactions with mentors in the field. One of the things that she found in this, in the as a result of the study, that one of the things that actually was the most impactful for these students was when they had informal interactions with mm-hmm. the mentors. It wasn't even sort of like going and hearing a presentation. It was that informal dialogue that they had with the mentors. And they're like, these are like real people mm-hmm. these are real people in these stem fields and so forth um so i think i think there's really something there that is to me as an elementary educator how, how do we bottle that how do we how do we have something like that happen in our elementary schools where it's it's not just a poster on the wall it's not a video that we watch it may not even be the field trip elementary schools are heavy on field mm-hmm. trips and field trips are good but like are field trips really shifting uh the beliefs of our students about what they what they can be and so i'm wondering how can we include mentors that can interact with our students in more of an informal basis so that we can get that that real relationship building and that connection and that shift in beliefs as a result of what they might want to be when they grow up
0: it mm, sounds like there's a new project on the <laughs> beginning uh, in the works here. That sounds super interesting. And I really appreciate that point around that social aspect of realizing they're human. It's, you know, <laughs> to do that when students see you outside of the school when they're little <laughs> and they're like, wait, you don't live at school? You know, that, that right. whole notion. Yeah. Um, you know, I I experience it as a young female math teacher looks of surprise parent faces, They would even say things like, you're the calculus teacher. Mm. Or I remember, you know, I went to college out of state. And so I remember flying back and forth and being that person on the airplane. And they would say, Oh, what are you studying? And I would say math. And they'd be like, you're majoring in math. And so like, I would love to get to a place where there isn't that surprise anymore, that we yeah. would just expect the diversity of in, in studying math and in mathematicians and in math teachers that we see in our society. And, and I think you're, you're on to something that to do that, to get us to that place, we have to help our students see themselves as potentially being mathematicians and studying math in the future. And how do we do that? We work on our own bias around it. And we help dispel those harmful stereotypes by introducing them to people and doing the posters and, you know, kind of all of those things that chip away at the understanding that, you know, any of us, all of us, our mathematicians.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh just for our readers if you jump to page 72, uh our author has provided a variety of bullets uh that that provide some suggestions of how you can continue to do this work in a classroom. And um and one of the bullets of course is right there with invite mathematicians or those in math related fields to give talks to students at your school. And again, I'm especially curious about that informal nature yeah. of conversation that could, could, could occur.
0: Give a talk and then hang out at recess, you know, <laughs> give a yeah. talk and hang out yeah. at like, yeah, like, recess. Right? Yeah. 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 Cause the recess conversation might be more impactful than yep. the talk. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we are running out of time, Mark. Do you have any final thoughts around this chapter and so much to talk about here? It's been a great chapter to read.
1: Oh uh, yeah. I, I, I agree, Audrey. Uh, one last thought, um, one of the things I'm thinking about, the author talks about this idea of making sure that our most marginalized students um, have access to advanced um, placement in terms of mathematics at, at different levels. And uh, because historically what we've seen is students, um, many students have been marginalized and not not been able to have access to a particular quote unquote advanced classes, perhaps in elementary Um and advanced tracking uh, in middle and high school. But one of the things that I was thinking about is is this whole idea of advanced altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. So like, let's take a fourth grade classroom, for example. Um, If we have an advanced track in fourth grade, we might say to ourselves, well, let's make sure that we have equal representation, that every student has the access to be able to um, engage in that particular part of the learning. But what I'm wondering about Audrey, is I'm wondering about whether that idea of advanced is something that is something that we're trying to push up against altogether. In other words, what if all students had access to challenging, interesting, joyful experiences in mathematics? And it's not something that we need to track. It's not something we need to say that um, certain students are going to get that. And even if we do make sure that we make it so it's more equitable. But what are we really doing, though? We're still taking a group of students, uh, whoever they are, and saying, you're not worthy of doing interesting things, because unfortunately, in many cases, the interesting work tends to happen in that so-called advanced uh, placement setting where the regular setting is more about we need to catch you up and remediate and and go a little slower so that you can keep up. So I, I just wonder about whether we're setting ourselves up for... Um, you know, something that we, we might want to be dispelling in the first place.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that, Mark. I think so much of this work is the yes and work. It's the, mm. yes, we need to do better in the system we're in. And yes, we need to break apart the system we're in, right? Like there's the two right. sides of it. It's, yeah. it's, we can help our students right now, think of themselves as doers of mathematics, and we can figure out what changes we need to make in our society and in ourselves and in our communities that changes how all of us perpetuate these notions of who does mathematics. So it's, it's nice to have both because one feels very daunting and one feels very practical, yeah, but we have to yeah. hold them in tandem together and keep working true. at both of them. So thanks for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thanks, Audrey. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter four. We are all math people. And we'll continue to discuss how we dismantle harmful beliefs that hinder equitable mathematics education. Until then, best wishes on rewriting the story of math.